the end of the service. <laughs> Take note of the other announcements in the bulletin. The men's fellowship breakfast, the first one of the year, will be next Saturday morning at 9 o'clock. The man in the mirror Bible study with the men that has been on the second and the fourth weekends in the month of January. It will be on the third and the fourth weekends, the 20th, 27th, 21st and 28th, I think is the dates, um, due to a conflict of schedule, personally. So, for my sake. And uh, so, between now and then, by the second week, you need to read the next four chapters in whatever they were, 16, 17, 18, I remember. Um, I'll let you know next week what they were, um, if you're not already reading it. You can read the rest of the book and just be covered. Um, I also want to say thank you very much for every Christmas card, every gift, every goodie that came our way. They're good. And they've motivated me to walk through three miles every morning so I can eat more of them. And just thank you, appreciate it very, very much. And... Uh, this morning, not only do we have a problem with the projector, but I put my phone on the charger and my glasses on top of my phone thinking I would not forget my phone. I forgot my phone. But my older brother gave me his readers, and they are really strong. He's really blind. <laughs> Of course, you know he's not my older brother. So I may wear them on the end of my nose. We'll see how this goes. On June 27th, 1976, there was an armed operative of the People's Front for the Liberation of Palestine that surprised the 12 crew members on an Air France jetliner, and the 91 passengers on board. Hijacked the plane, took off with really no plan that anybody knew. They ended up landing in Uganda in Central Africa, where Idi Amin, you remember that name, welcomed them to stay on the tarmac there. They were there for about a week planning their next move. What they did not plan on was the Israeli army filling up three C-130 Hercules transports, landing on that tarmac in the middle of the night, gunning down every one of the hijackers, releasing the hostages, all of them survived except three. I bring up that story because two weeks ago in the book of Genesis in chapter 14, we saw that there was a battle that took place between the four kings of the north and the five kings of the south. And the, the, these northern warlords underneath the direction of Caleromar they came and looted the southern part of Canaan and they took captives and they took all the stuff, especially from Sodom. And remember, they took Lot and his family and all of Lot's stuff. And there was one man who escaped that particular attack and he went to Abram knowing that Lot and Abram were connected, and he told them the story. And so Abram rallied the 318 trained men in his household, and they pursued the four armies of the north for 120 miles. When they caught up to them in the middle of the night, they planned a surprise attack, divided themselves into three companies, 
and they ended up routing those four kings and their armies, chasing them another 20 miles before they dropped all the stuff and let all the prisoners of war go free. We're going to pick up the story this morning in chapter 17 as Abram is leading the entourage of his soldiers and the prisoners of war that he's bringing home. Verse 17 says, After his return from the defeat of Kerdolomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava. That's the king's valley. That's a valley, it's in the neighborhood of Jerusalem, just south of Jerusalem, I believe. The valley of the king, or the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, Salem would become Jerusalem. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. He was priest of God Most High. And Melchizedek, and it says, and he blessed him, blessed Abram. And he said, blessed be Abram by God Most High. One of the commentators I read said Melchizedek was preaching to all the Canaanites who happened to be in the area when Abram came. He was preaching Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anar, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. These eight verses contain some very important theological truths. We are introduced to one of the most important, and some scholars believe the most important person in the Old Testament, this man, Melchizedek. There's a lot of mystery around this particular man, the king of Salem. The only other time in the Old Testament he's mentioned is David mentioned him in a psalm. And then in the book of Hebrews, we are told that Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus Christ himself. And as late as yesterday morning, my intention was to talk to you about Melchizedek this morning. And in this context, we not only see Melchizedek, but we see the first mention of tithe in the Bible a very important biblical principle and one that we will address before we go on to Genesis chapter 15. But when I got to my desk yesterday morning and opened up my computer and began to think about what I'm going to put on paper for us today, there was something in the passage that I read here that grabbed my attention in a way it had not earlier in the week regarding the name of God. The God Most High. God Most High. Now, we've started this series of messages April I think April 30th, the last Sunday in April, right after Easter. And in the first message, in the beginning, God. In chapter 1, we see that name, God, I think 34 times or something like that. Elohim is what that name is. 
Elohim. That indicates that God is the majestic ruler, omnipotent, or creative, and governing power. And the words do show up back there if you can't listen fast enough. And the majestic ruler, omnipotence, or creative and governing power. Elohim is the first name that we are introduced to in chapter 1. When we get to chapter 2, Moses changed the name that he was referring to God by. And he begins to talk about the Lord God. Lord, L-O-R-D, capital. The Yahweh. The I am that I am. I am that I am. The one who is self-existent. The one who causes things to be. So in chapter 2, he is Yahweh Elohim. The Lord God. Yahweh Elohim. To the people of Israel who were given the command, do not Take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Yahweh was that name. It's, so that's that name that all through the Old Testament, when L-O-R-D is in caps, that is the substitute name for Yahweh, or we used to say it Jehovah. And we really don't know what the proper name is, the proper pronunciation, because there, in the Hebrew there were no vowels. It was all consonants. And so um, that's the name that, Moses was given at the burning bush. When he was standing, the Lord said, take your shoes off. You're standing on holy ground. So from all of those things, the Jewish people never spoke that name out loud. They never wrote it. They referred to him as Lord, but it's the I am, Yahweh. So in chapter 2, Genesis, he's Yahweh Elohim. Now we are in chapter 14 we are introduced to another name of God that tells us something more about his nature. God is giving all of these names so we can understand more about his nature, his character, about who he is and what he does. And in this one, in verse 18, and it's on the screen, but you have to turn around to see it, but it's on your notes. Verse 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. Then in verse 19, we read again, blessed be Abram by God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth. In verse 20, blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then one more time in verse 22, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God, most high, possessor of of heaven and earth. God most high is made up of two different words in the Hebrew. God is the word El. E-L. God is El. Most high is Elyon. Elyon. He is God El. Most high Elyon. That means he's God supreme. Most high means that there is no other God above him. If indeed there were other gods, he was the only one that they would try to ascend to and above. But Elyon is so high, he is so superior, that there is none that can arise to his throne and overthrow him. There is none that can defeat God Most High. Thank you, baby. The beauty of my glasses is the bottom half are readers and the top half is just clear glass. So when I look up, you're not all fuzzy. El Elyon is at the top of the top. We already said Yahweh is the omnipotent one, the one who causes things to be. He is Elohim, the creator of everything. He is El Elyon, the God most high. You can go 
no higher. It's another reminder. El Elyon means God is absolutely sovereign. He is absolutely sovereign. Every one of those names, but he reiterates it with this third name of God, God Most High. When, when I think of the sovereignty of God, there are a couple of passages of Scripture that almost always come to my mind when I'm thinking about that. Uh, the first passage, since it's not the main thrust that we're going to talk about, we'll hit it more quickly. The first passage is Job 38 and 39 and part of chapter 40. In chapter 38, God finally interrupts the gathering of Job's friends who have been accusing him. For 10 days, they came and mourned with him when he lost everything. They did not say a word. They were really wise for 10 days. And then they showed their ignorance. And you say, that's pretty, well, God said to them, you have no idea what you're talking about. And that's a paraphrase. You can read it. Uh, but God interrupts Elihu, who is the fourth man who comes. And now for about four or five chapters, he has been telling Job that you need to, you need to just buck up, man, and confess what you've done to put you in this position. And then he begins to give all these things about God that he thinks he knows about God. God interrupts, and he speaks to Job. Because way back in chapter 32, Job is crying out to God, Hear me, answer me. These guys have been accusing me of sins that I have not committed. Elihu's talking about things he doesn't know about. God interrupts. And he says to Job, stand here and take this like a man. And his first question is, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who is it that measured off the dimensions and marked them off? He goes on, who is it that fixed the boundaries of the oceans and said to the waves, you can go this far and no further? And the questions go on and on and on. Chapter 38, chapter 39, all rhetorical questions because Job, the only thing he could say was nothing. God did it all because he's God most high. It was his power. It was his will that accomplished it. The other passage that comes to my mind is Isaiah chapter 40, and it's a very similar uh, context. But in, in verse 13, God speaking through Isaiah said, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? God said, who did I go to for counsel? What architect did I check in with? What building inspector? What engineer? None. Before those questions and after them, God speaking through Isaiah speaks of his sovereignty over creation, its very existence in the first place, and his ongoing rule of it. In that chapter, he talks about the fact that he measured the oceans in the palm of his hand. He measured the distance between the stars with the span of his hand, the distance between his thumb and his finger. Now it's only 93 million miles from here to the sun. And he said he measured those. That's far enough. All of that. In that particular, in, that, in verse 25, he said, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. 
To whom will you compare? He's the God most high. The next note is he's God most high, possessor or framer of heaven and earth. He created it. It's his to do with as he pleases, when he pleases, how he pleases, because he is God most high. So Abram on his journey back, now they've gone clear to the north, out of the land of Canaan. Now on this journey back, as I said before, bringing these people that he set free, he passes by Salem, later called Jerusalem. The priest of Salem comes out to meet him, so does the king of Sodom, the king of Sodom who had fled from Cater-Lomer and the, and the earlier battle in the valley at the, the base of the Dead Sea. Moses, in writing about the event, highlights the fact Melchizedek is a priest of El Elyon. Moses highlighted the fact that Melchizedek makes it clear. El Elyon gave Abram victory in battle. It was God Most High who gave Abram the victory in the battle. He went, he and his 318 men, they went. But without the God Most High, there was no victory. I hope you're making a personal application. Without God Most High, there is no victory. Now here's the interesting thing about this phrase, God Most High. God Most High implies that there are other gods. Implies that there are other gods. Now hang with me. Don't think I'm preaching heresy yet, okay? Stick with me. The first of the Ten Commandments implies that there are other gods. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. I'm going to make a statement that's going to sound somewhat contradictory, but I'm going to make it anyway. There is one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But the world has thousands of gods. There is only one God who's real, the God Most High. But this world, the world system, there are thousands of gods. You see, the second commandment defines those kinds of gods. The second commandment is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. All through scriptures, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Romans, God makes fun of people who make a God out of the wood that they chop down. Part of it they use as a fire to cook their food. Part of it they use to build a dwelling to dwell in. And then they take part of it and say, this is my God. You shall not make for yourself. It is amazing to me, but then I guess it's not because Solomon wrote, God put eternity in our hearts. But mankind has always looked and always believed that there's some higher power. And many times in seeking that higher power, they ignore the only one that there is. And they create their own. Even the Israelites who had been brought out of the land of Egypt miraculously, God in a cloud in front of them, fire by night. I mean, how much more manifestation do you need of the presence of God? But when Moses is up on the mountain, what do those people say? Make us a God. And they throw, Aaron said, we just threw the gold in the fire and out came this calf. 
It's interesting, they called that calf Elohim, but they wanted a God they could see and touch and not the scary one on the mountain where it was trembling and thundering and lightning was taking place. And so people for centuries, since the beginning of Cain and his bunch, they have been making up their own gods. They've, there are other people who believe that the sun is a god, the moon is a god. Remember, Abram came from Ur the Chaldees where they worship the moon god. I have read that the Egyptians had over 1,200 deities that they worshipped in their culture. I believe George C. told us that the Hindus have over 4,000. And it is interesting that the Egyptians and the Hindus shared at least one, the cow god. Do you remember the ten plagues that were sent to Egypt? Gnats, flies, frogs, all those things, the water turning to blood. I don't remember all ten of them at the moment. But if you study it, you know what you'll find out? Well, I put it in the notes. Each of the ten plagues of Exodus was a testimony to the powerlessness of their gods. And that Yahweh, El Elyon, is God most high. Every one of those plagues was a showdown between one of their imagined gods and the real God. You remember the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel? Days of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Even if you haven't read the Bible, you've heard of Queen Jezebel. He challenged the prophets of Baal, a supposed god of the Canaanites. Jezebel, not being from Israel, brought with her when she married Ahab, Baal. Baal was touted to be the storm god, the god of the rain. The first time we see Elijah in the scripture, Elijah the Tisprite, he is standing before King Ahab and he says to him, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain for the next few years except at my word. He had built in Samaria a temple to Baal and raised up Azura poles. He said, it's not going to rain until I give the word. For three and a half years, by the way, the Azura poles were the consorted um, goddess with Baal, uh, goddess of fertility, we're not really sure what the pole looked like, maybe the shape of a woman. There will never be due, there will not be due a rain for three and a half years. Elijah does not show himself, and it does not rain a drop. Ahab searched high and low for him. He sends out posses, and when they finally meet face to face. Ahab says, you troubler of Israel. And Elijah said, no, no, no. You're the one who brought trouble on Israel when you built the temple to Baal and caused people to walk away from the living God. Here's what we're going to do, though. We're going to have a showdown. You bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Azurah and meet me on Mount Carmel. You know why Elijah knew he could not lose that battle? Because Baal wasn't anything. He does not exist. A figment of somebody's imagination. When they all meet on Carmel, Elijah addresses the people who have shown up. Who is God? Is it Yahweh or is it Baal? How long will you waver back and forth between the two? He said, today we are going to find out who God is. On right here, the battle of gods on Carmel. 
We'll build an altar. We'll put a sacrifice on it. We'll put wood in the sacrifice, a bull, and then we'll at least pray to our respective gods. And the God who answers by fire, let him be God. And you know the story. Prophets of Baal prayed all day long. They went through all their connotations, and they're cutting themselves, shedding their blood, trying to catch Baal's attention. Elijah made fun of them all day long, and then when it came time for the evening sacrifice, he said, step aside, my turn, rebuilds his altar, pours 12 buckets of water on top of it, lays a sacrifice in the wood on it, and then prays a prayer of about 66 words. And verse 38 says this, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offerings and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. They saw that He was God Most High. God Most High. P.S. The story of that day ends with Elijah praying for, for what? For rain. Who was the God in charge of the rain? Not Baal. It was the God most high. It rained for the first time for three and a half years. The ground of Samaria was watered again. Yahweh El Yon is the God of the rain. There's another story in 1 Kings chapter 20 that gives us a picture of the mindset of pagan nations concerning their gods. In the first part of the story, chapter 20, God gives Israel a victory against Ben-Hadad and the Syrian army. Now, Ahab's still a king. He's still kicking. But, but God showed grace and mercy, and he gave him a great victory. And then in verse 13, it said, And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen this great multitude? The Syrians came back with a whole lot of people. I will give it to your hands this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This is the first battle. Ben-Hadad ends up fleeing on horseback. Him and 32 kings that have allied in an army with him, defeated by the Israeli army, 7,000. But Ben-Hadad did not give up easy. He had some advisors give him some great military thinking. Verse 23, the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are gods of the hills, so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. They're saying, see, what the Canaanites believed is that gods had local places of authority, just like those kings had local places of authority. They had their own little area that they were in charge of. We know what the problem is. Those Israeli people, their God is the God of the hills. Look where they all live. Let's meet them out there on the big plain of Dora, and we will show them that our God is greater than their God. God's response, God's response, verse 28, And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is the God of the hills, and he's not the God of the valleys, therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am God most high. Over and over in Scripture, God lets it be known that he is El Elyon, God most high. 606 B.C. The Babylonian army under the command of Nebuchadnezzar laid siege on Jerusalem, eventually destroying the city walls, coming into the city and destroying buildings, including the magnificent temple that Solomon had built. He took many people as prisoners of war back to Babylon, 
made slaves in his empire. Dan, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were four of the hundreds that were taken. It was the opinions of the pagans in those days. The Babylonians, the Canaanites, all those people. That if you conquered another nation, that meant your God was greater than their God. How else could the victory be won? Almost like the NFL. Our quarterback's better than your quarterback, so we won. So these Babylonians are believing our God must be stronger than Yahweh. You call him the most high, really? Then how is it that your temple is a pile of rubble? How is it that all the treasures of the temple, the gold, and there was lots of it, has all been seized by Nebuchadnezzar? All the sacred implements of worship. To the Babylonians, the message seemed clear. The God of Israel was not El Elyon. King Nebuchadnezzar was the king of one of the greatest empires the world has ever seen. He believed that, but God also told him that. You can read it in the book of Daniel. But here's the thing. Nebuchadnezzar didn't have the right to take credit for it because he was nothing except what God allowed him to be. So when he was bragging about it, God took Nebuchadnezzar to school. God took Nebuchadnezzar to school. Has the Lord ever taken you to school? I want you to think about that just a moment. In chapter 3, one of the lessons Nebuchadnezzar was given was a result of having built a 90-foot gold image. Now, we don't know whether it was an image of himself or whether it was an image of one of the Babylonian gods, but it was covered with gold. What the, what the text does tell us is that he gathered all the leaders, all the civil leaders in the Babylonian empire, he brought them to this plain of Dura, and he said, when my royal symphony begins to play, and he lists all these instruments, when they begin to play the music, you are to fall on your face and worship this image that I have created. Anyone not bowing will be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. The music started, everyone fell on their faces except for three Hebrew guys. And some jealous Chaldeans who did not like these guys because God's favor was upon them and they kept being promoted above the Chaldeans, they ratted them out. Nebuchadnezzar did not want to believe it. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar gave that first command, he said, if you're found to be standing, you're throwing the... But he gives them another chance. He gives them another chance. He said, you must not have understood this. But I'm going to give you another chance. And before it's all over, he adds a little more drama and incentive. And he said, we're going to heat the furnace seven times hotter than it's ever been. Now I got to thinking about that. What's the point? I mean, a human body in fire is soon dead. Unless they were perfecting cremation, where we're going to turn this body into a pile of dust that we can put in an urn and keep on the, on the mantle for the rest of time. Look what he has to say to these young men. Verse 15 in Daniel 3. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the dragon, the harp, the bagpipe, that must have been some sound. Every kind of music. Fall down and worship the image that I've made. Well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. 
And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? They replied, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Verse 18 says this, but if not, he can do it, but even if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The king called for some strong men. I want you to bind these guys and throw them into that furnace. I mean, he says his anger is just, oh, he was as hot as the furnace. And the men who carried the boys into the flame and threw them in bound died from the heat. A few moments later, the king cannot believe his eyes. He says to those around him, didn't we just cast three men into the fire bound? Yes, sir. I see four, and they're walking unharmed. And the fourth looks like the Son of God. He calls them out. Verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the... I didn't hear you. The Most High God. Come out and come here. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego came out of the fire. Close examination by the officials... Confirmed, no singed hair, no damage to the garments, no damage to the skin. They didn't even smell like smoke. The scripture said they saw the fire had no power over the bodies of these men. Nebuchadnezzar pronounced a death sentence on anyone who would speak against the Most High God, El Yayan saying there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. I want you to hear this this morning. El Elyon is greater than any trial that we may ever go through. God Most High is greater than any trial that we may ever go through. The Most High God is greater than any obstacle in my life today. The Most High God is greater than any obstacle in my life today. I want to say it one more time just in case you have dozed off. The Most High God is greater than any obstacle in my life today. I think in the next service, we're going to sing, Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Our God is higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome in power. Our God. Nebuchadnezzar was a slow learner. So God had to school him again. You see, he had a real emotional experience on the day of the fiery furnace, but it was only skin deep and didn't last. Because when we go to chapter 4 of Daniel, God is still schooling the pagan king. He's not graduated yet. The chapter begins with the king giving praise to the Most High God. But when we get to verse 4 of chapter 4, he is taking life easy in his palace and while he's taking life easy in his palace, he has a dream. He has this dream, and, and it disturbs him so much that he calls for the wise men of Babylon. Come and tell me the meaning of this dream. And he tells them this, the dream, and they say, well, we don't know what it means. Well, call Daniel. 
And they bring in Daniel. He called him Belteshazzar. And he tells him the dream. He told him he saw a tree in the midst of the earth and it went way up into the heavens. It was seen from everywhere on the earth. It provided abundant fruit for all, shade for the animals and home for the birds. All flesh was fed from this tree. He said, however, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven, gave a command to chop the tree down and strip the fruit and the leaves and bind a stump. And then it takes a turn and it says, let him be wet with dew. Let his portion be with a beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from man to a beast. Let seven periods of time pass over him. And Nebuchadnezzar said these words, verse 17. Sentences by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Those words came to him in the dream. The living may know the most high rules of the kingdom of men. When Daniel heard what Nebuchadnezzar said, it shook him. He was visibly moved to the point that Nebuchadnezzar said, Hey, don't you, don't you get upset. I want to know exactly what this dream means. So Daniel shares with him, unless you repent. That dream is you. You are that tree. You are going to be cut down. And you are going to go into the field as an animal for seven years unless you repent. A year later, verse 29, at the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. Immediately, he lost his mind to the point that they drove him from the palace out into the wilds. He ate grass like an ox. His hair grew to be as long as eagle feathers. His nails were like bird crawls for seven years. Daniel 4.35, after seven years, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised him, honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He said, I blessed the Most High. Did you know the words Most High God occur in the New Testament as well as the Old? The angel Gabriel said to Mary, you're going to have a child, and he will be the son of the Most High. In Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount, the message Jesus said, uh, Luke's account of, he said, love your enemies, do good, Luke 6, 35, and land expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Sons of the Most High, if I treat my enemies with the love that Jesus Christ has. Then there's a story that appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three. When Jesus says to the disciples, we're going to go across the Sea of Galilee, we're going to go to Genesaret, the land of the Gadarenes. When they get to the other side, Jesus gets out of the boat 
And when Jesus gets out of the boat, he is approached by a man who has not worn clothes for years, lives in the tombs. They lock him, they chain him up, but he breaks the chain because he seems to be totally insane. And when he comes before him, this man says, I beg you, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, do not torment me. And if you read the story, Jesus speaks to the demons. They were legion, thousand of them. Don't torment us. And Jesus cast them into herd of the swine, and the swine commit suicide as they ran into the sea and drowned. Demons recognize the Most High God. The religious people of Jesus' day, when he walked the earth, did not recognize him, but the demons did. Remember the story in Acts? Paul and Silas are in Philippi. As they walk through the streets, every day there's this young woman who has a spirit of divination saying, saying to the people all around him, this, listen, these are the servants of a most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. For some reason, it irritated Paul. After several days, he turned around and he said, come out of her, evil spirit. And it did. She was set free from a demonic spirit. Big problem. She was employed by men who were making a killing because she could foretell the future. And they were no longer getting that income. So they went and told the magistrates, these people here, they are coming doing things that are illegal for Romans to do. You see, if you were a Roman and you're living in the Roman Empire, you know who you're supposed to worship? Caesar. Caesar's claim to be gods. So they put him in jail. They beat them, locked their feet in stocks in the inner jail. These terrible criminals who deliver people from demons. We're not going to let them go. But what happened at midnight when they're singing praises to God most high? The earth began to tremble. The jail doors go open. Every shackle is loosened. And before morning, the jailer and his whole family are baptized into the family of God. Because God Most High. Who is stronger, God or Caesar? Well, God showed himself to be the God Most High. I want you to know, there's coming a day when every communist nation that says there is no God will know without a doubt he is God most high. There's coming a day when every Islam nation will know beyond a shadow of a doubt it's not Yahweh. They will know that Yahweh in the person of Jesus Christ is God most high. There's coming a day when every Hindu and every Buddhist who believes there's too many gods to know them all will know that there's only one God. He's God most high. There's coming a day when arrogant men who sit in places of elected office are going to find out there is a God most high. We have rampant in our nation today numerous religions such as Wiccanism, Satanism, Santeria, and at the core of all of those, and at the core of secular society and secular thinking is the fact that you are your own God. You're equal to God. You're the master of your own destiny. But it's a lie. A lie being propagated by the one, the first one, who thought that he could ascend to the throne and be as God. Isaiah 14 12, 13, and 14. Talks about the king of Persia, but most scholars believe it is a picture 
of Lucifer himself. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the foundations, laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. What was the result? But you are brought down to Sheol, the far reaches of the pit. The demons recognized Jesus as the Son of the Most High. They cried out, do not torment me, because they already knew the power that the Most High God had over them. They knew that they were already um, sentenced to eternal damnation because they had joined Lucifer in an attempt to be God. I want to contrast that with the route that Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, took. In Philippians chapter 2, talks about Jesus in verse 5, who thought it not Robert to be equal with God, because he was God, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, verse 6, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He humbled himself and God exalted him. Now Jesus is God most high. Jesus is God most high. I didn't put it in your notes, but you need to write this in. The next thing that's on the slide says this. You don't see the slide, but I can trust him with everything. Jesus is God most high, so I can trust him with everything. Amen? He's God most high over every enemy I have. He's God most high over every enemy that I have. Human, spiritual, physical, he's God most high. He's God most high over every storm that comes my way. Over every storm that comes my way. He's the one who can speak to the wind and the waves and say, peace, be still, and they will. He's the one who will take me through every storm. He is God most high over every sickness or disease. Over every sickness and every disease. He's God most high. Everywhere Jesus went, he healed sick people. Except in Nazareth. where they said, that's Joseph's boy. They didn't understand he was God most high. He is God most high over every relationship. He is God most high over every relationship. He can heal broken hearts, wounded spirits. He is God most high over my every need. Paul said in Philippians 4, I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to not have enough, to be clothed, to be naked. But my God will supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He is God most high and deserves all my worship. All my worship. And we're going to define 
what that means with the next note. He is God most high, and the only reasonable worship is to present myself as a living sacrifice in submission to his lordship. In submission to his lordship. As we turn the calendar into a brand new year, I like that. God set it up so we can start over every 365 days. Is Jesus most high in your heart today? Will you covenant with yourself and the Lord by his grace to live every day of 2024 with Jesus at the most high place in your heart and in your spirit? Stand as we sing together. He's worthy of it all. And we'll close in prayer. It'll be time for breakfast or lunch.